0: listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi-Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely, And you're listening to episode 17, The Immortal Profession, or Byzantium, directed by Neil Jordan. So you hadn't seen this one before, right?
1: I hadn't.
0: No, it's been on my list for ages, but
1: I hadn't actually seen it. Because I quite like it. Yeah, um, it's been a while since i would seen this one. And going back and re-watching it, there's just so many more layers to it that I totally missed the last time. Wearing. And I'm even madder that it didn't do better at the box office. This tanked pretty severely. So, as usual, time for a quick rundown, uh, Kaylee, since you've seen it twice. Do you want to give it a go? <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's really not a plot-based movie. It is far more a character piece that just happens to have neck-stabbing and vampires in it. It's really ostensibly the story of a mother and daughter, Clara and Eleanor, played by Gemma Arcturne and Saoirse Ronan, who are on the run from the Bigger Badder Vampires and end up living in a dilapidated seaside resort, which is Brighton, but is never explicitly mentioned to be Brighton. I guess they didn't really want to be referred to as dilapidated. I don't blame them. They end up hiding out in this dilapidated hotel called Byzantium, which they turn into a brothel to make their way in the world. And Eleanor goes to the local college and falls in love with a cancer patient who she sends her stories to where she admits, yeah, I was born in the Napoleonic Wars and my mother was a sex worker and still is and turned herself into a vampire. And then I got raped by the Ruffman, not that Ruffman, and then I got turned into a vampire myself. It's, as I said, that sounds very plot heavy, but it is really much more about this relationship between a mother and daughter that is only separated by eight or nine years and is deeply toxic.
0: Yeah, this is more a movie about the moment of change in their relationship after many, many, many years of being static. Yes. Some of its outside forces, some of its internal forces, but they are finally reaching that separation point because... Eleanor has been dependent on her mother for, well, you said since the Napoleonic Wars, which is a long time to be with your mother. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is something we don't really see touched upon in a lot of um, vampire work, especially ones where they do have parental figures. I was immediately drawn to compare it to Twilight with its idea of the parent-child relationship, where there is very few years between the parent and child, physically at least. That is one thing I did appreciate about the movie adaptations where they actually made the adults like adults, not, you know, a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old parenting 17, 18-year-olds.
1: Yeah, I think the really terrible makeup also helped add a couple of years onto them. Poor <laughs> Peter Fascinelli, he looked like Fred from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> oh dear. But what was really interesting to me about Byzantium is it's how much of it is about a mother-daughter relationship because it's actually really rare to see those relationships in fiction of any kind, vampire or otherwise. Father-son is kind of the preferred dynamic because, you know, manly feelings and all that masculinity and duty and things, whereas women are usually coded as being inherently paternal. You know, it's their, they're supposed to be mothers. It's their job, that whole thing, and the relationship that Clara has with Eleanor is often paternal, but because there's only about eight or nine years separating them, at least in appearance, it plays more like squabbling siblings, it plays more like a romantic relationship at times. Not incestuous, but in the dynamic of there's one person who's got more, she's got more cards in her deck, she's clearly got power. Eleanor kind of goes along with it because she doesn't really know anything else. It's her, a- you know, her life has been dominated by kind of authoritative figures. Before Clara came along, she was in an orphanage. Was it a Catholic orphanage? Run by nuns. It was a severe period setting
0: orphanage. Nothing too. Very ye old orphanage. Yeah, yeah old orphanage full of girls and strict rules and everyone wears modest clothing. That actually compounds the problems with the relationship because they are mother and daughter, but they really only connect. They only ever connected once Eleanor was sixteen.
1: Yes, and it was the, the first time they really meet and interact. Uh, beforehand, she is pulling the fool Edward Cullen by peeking through her window to look at her at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time we really see them actually interact in the timeline of the story, because there's flashbacks, but the first time we really see them interact. It's because Clara has to rush in and defend Eleanor from Ruffin, who is played by Johnny Lee Miller, who was her pimp, kind of. He's an asshole. She's basically the reason reason that she is pushed into sex work. He kind of just plucks her out of her existence and pushes her into a brothel. Which he
0: apparently has done with other girls. It's just uh, Clara is the favoured one.
1: Yes. Um, to take it back a little bit, actually, for some more sense, the story of Clara begins, she is this very young, naive, beret, poverty-stricken woman in the Napoleonic Wars era, who is sort of favoured by two men. There's Ruffin, played by Johnny Lee Miller, who is the, the more dastardly of the two, who seems to be working in conjunction with a brothel to recruit women. And then there's Darville, played by Sam Riley, who takes a more personal interest in her. But after a few years passed, Clara has been working in this brothel for a long time, and she's contracted consumption. So lots of blood-coughing scenes, <laughs> as you do. And she sees darvel again, and he's now immortal. And he tells... No, he doesn't tell the story. It's Ruffin that tells the story to her of how Darville made him take him to this mysterious small island off the coast of Ireland and he goes into this small brick, kind of, this very small almost ceremonial building on this island full of crows, encounters like a, a doppelganger of himself who violently kills him and then that's how he becomes a vampire, although they're never called vampires.
0: They're called sucreants.
1: Yes, which... we'll come back to that. Uh, but back to Clara. She hears the story because she's dying of consumption. She steals the mat from Ruffin and uses it to basically ensure their, her own immortality. And Ruffin's way of getting back at her for this while well, he is dying of syphilis is to rape Clara's daughter. Ensuring that she will have very slow, nasty, painful death. But his revenge doesn't last very long because Clara comes along and just shanks him with her really long thumbnail. It's like, game over. Yeah. So that's the first time that Clara meets Eleanor face to face is screaming at John B. Miller as she's stabbing him repeatedly with her fingernails.
0: After Eleanor has been raped.
1: Yes. It is very... There's a touch of the rape revenge fantasy in there but it's a lot of the, you know, never come near me or my daughter again. The kind of primal maternal instinct I think is what they're going for So that is the first time you see them and then the next time, the next thing they're doing is really she is taking Eleanor to this island to ensure that she will die because as is mentioned by Sam Riley's character earlier in one of these flashbacks it's lonely being a vampire because vampire has been completely ostracized from the rest of her kind who are all men and are all aristocratic
0: yeah, they're not supposed to have a woman in their circle. Women aren't supposed to be vampires, but because she hasn't technically broken any of their rules, they can't go out and hunt her and kill her. But in the yeah, making just of, kind of Yeah. They're like Well, technically it's not illegal for her to become a vampire. We just never thought it would come up.
1: It's kinda of like two ladies.
0: Yeah. But the act of making Eleanor into a vampire is the crime for which she can be hunted down.
1: Yes, yeah, because she's only
0: 16. That, and they're very specific that a woman cannot create another vampire.
1: Funny how they had a bylaw against that, but not against women becoming vampires, technically.
0: My assumption is that's the law that they came up with to deal with <laughs> the, in the aftermath of the problem.
1: But, but it is a really interesting take on not just gender class and we've talked about class a lot in this podcast because vampires are often a byline for the aristocracy you know feeding off of the the blood of the working class that kind of thing and here the vampires are intended to be made up explicitly of refined upper-class gentlemen it is almost like the Bullingdon club for, for their time except it's vampires and the fact that it is passed explicitly through the bloodline of the upper class, of the gentry, of the the nobles, of the you know dukes and such, and is not intended to be passed to anyone of lower means, particularly a you know consumption-ridden sex worker who's really only in that position because of men like them. Yeah, Clara
0: contrasts so, them at, with, at them contrasts with them at every angle. She's female; they're male. They're a, aristocrats. She's a poor sex worker. She's, every one of their ideals isn't.
1: Yeah, and they're dedicated to the status quo. and she explicitly tells them, I'm going to use this to fuck you all up. (laughs) Or not especially them, but to sort of act as justice to right the wrongs that have been done to women like her. Mm -hmm. She is less picky about her victims than Eleanor. It's Eleanor, it's kind of Going for the warlier area of people who are already dying, whereas Clara is happy to, you know, any yeah. man that wants to use her services as a sex worker. That's very rape prevention safety. The way that's going, you know, there's a whole stream of horror films that kind of fall into the ranks of all. sex workers get punished because they're sex workers, and this feels like an explicit trust to that. Yes. Uh,
0: Eleanor is basically seen as the angel of death come to finally release people. She's explicitly called that by at least one victim. So she's shooting people at the end of their lives who are happy to go, ready to go. One person, he looks okay, but he actually asked her right in the beginning, I know what you are, I'm ready. Whereas she goes after people in hospitals and the old folks' homes and things like that. Clara goes after, as you said, um, the pimps and people who prey on women. She kills a pimp in Not Brighton and then plucks up his uh, the woman under his employ and hires them to work in the Byzantium brothel.
1: Yeah, the entire angle of the intersections of the vampire story and sex work are really fascinating. But it's fascinating in general because it's really rare to see a narrative of a sex worker in fiction of any kind that isn't just, here's a sex worker, they're going to die. Like, I feel like we need the Bechdel-Wallace test for depictions of sex workers in
0: film. Is there a
1: sex worker in a film? Do they die? If not, you pass the test. But they're not seen as warning signs. They're not depicted as rescue projects either. They are... Especially for Clara, she is a fully rounded character. And when you see scenes of the other women who are working in Byzantium who been recruited by her, they are bored shitless. You know, to them, this is kind of the humdrum aspect of all the job. Which is really rare to see in fiction.
0: Yes, the scenes where the servicing customers and one of them is just on her cell phone the entire time.
1: Yeah, she's just lying here. The, the work is being done. She is, I don't know, just like. There's no Snapchat. <laughs> just like, yeah. Whatever
0: she's doing, she's busy. Like, I'm just checking up on Reddit or whatever.
1: So, that is really interesting to me. If, if interested in more on the politics of sex workers' work, um, there's a wonderful book called Playing the Whore by Melissa Jira Grant, which was really instrumental in me having a lot of changes in my thought processes regarding sex workers' feminist act. So check that one out. Also New Zealand has a really interesting angle on this because you guys actually have decriminalisation. Yep. We don't. It's not illegal, but there's a lot of things you can't do. You can't solicit work on the streets, for example. You're not allowed to have a certain amount of people working together because then that's considered a brothel and then that is a problem.
0: But of course, as you said, we've had it decriminalised for many years, probably helped by the fact that we did have a former sex worker in our parliament.
1: The problem in the UK is the the one the model everyone wants here is the Nordic model, which is ostensibly supposed to punish the customer and not the sex worker. Sex workers have repeatedly reported that is never the case. Um, I would suggest looking up a number of groups on that one: sex workers open university, the English Collective of Prostitutes, are really good ones to start with. It is a very t- um, a very complicated matter, and I understand that, but we are interested in. Exploring a very specific thing that is going on in the story and how that is part of a wider context. And also just the wider context in fiction, because as we said, you never get to see sex workers as actual characters in fiction. What is really fascinating to me about Clara's situation is that if you read a lot of vampire fiction, vampires, as I said, are often a sort of byword for aristocracy, but that often means free of the responsibilities of humanity. Mm -hmm. The big selling point for twilight other than eternal youth and beauty is that you never have to worry again about paying the bills or doing a job or whatever because the cullens seem to have limitless funds
0: you don't even need to do the laundry because you just wear it once and then give it away
1: i hated that whole thing by the way it's <laughs> like but I, bugged so much i'm just like but it fits nice yeah you don't have to worry about like bloat or anything just wear it but that's what I'm saying. Even the like, there's like so many concerns about humanity or your daily life, particularly if you're working class. Are I've got to be careful with these clothes. I've got to make sure I don't spend too money, too much money on something. That dress is lovely, but it is twenty pound out of my budget. That kind of thing.
0: Mm.
1: And for these guys, it's like dress up, or even something like Dracula, who is obviously a noble and has an awful lot of money to invest in the London property market. <laughs> Which isn't as costly then as it is now, but it's still a lot of money. And here, that's not the case for Clara. Clara needs money. Clara needs to work. Clara has to do the only thing that she knows how to do. Because it was the only thing that she was ever given to do in her pre-vampire life. She doesn't have an education. She doesn't have the means to get one. So she resorts to doing what she knows how to do, which is sex.
0: And even when she's not working as a sex worker, she's still reliant on other people to provide her and her daughter with shelter and other resources uh That's where Noel comes into it. The owner of the Byzantium hotel uh, originally he was going to be just another customer when he starts crying before anything happens and reveals that he's inherited you know an old guest house. She decides. Well, I'll just go home with him, and she does.
1: Honestly, I was expecting her to kill him. Yeah, and she uses that as leverage against Eleanor, who doesn't like the fact that she is so brazen about killing. She says, "Don't say anything, or I will kill him."
0: Any other story would have just had her kill him and then just take over the whole place. But no, he sticks around, and as is... well, he has a lot of faults. He also seems he treats Eleanor quite decently.
1: I think he has a reasonably simple attitude about women that's not necessarily actively malicious, but it is pretty insidious all the same. I mean, he does kind of want to to quote-unquote rescue her. I mean, he talks about, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. And she's like, well, yeah, gotta make money. Because this hotel he's running is a mess. And it's in a resort where there's not a lot of money to be made at that current economic moment. Brighton has had some struggles over the years and you see in shot a lot the burnt out remnants of the pier in the background, which is not an especially subtle metaphor, but it gets the job done. But you see like the general state of the places that they live in, not just Brighton, but at the beginning they're staying in a, a block flats that is very rundown.
0: it's very old you know old 70s style wallpaper and that's seen better days and very small corridors and, th- and and those
1: that are blocked out with newspaper even though they are not allergic to the sunlight so that's probably just cover up their you know anything bad going on in, in their flat but it's also it's quite common to see a site like that around a more run down area at least in, in Scotland, in the UK.
0: Also, uh, it does seem that Clara does work in the evening, so maybe it's just so she can sleep a bit better.
1: Well, that's when the business is there.
0: You know, it's the, the loss.
1: People are going to be soliciting sex workers, uh, you know, four in the afternoon. So it's like
0: the in Fright Night when no, nobody seems to think any big deal of a uh, guy next door having blacked out windows because he works in Las
1: Vegas. Yeah. So I think there's sort of a. a little... A lesser version of this I don't know if the nightlife is quite the same in Brighton As it would be in Vegas but
0: <laughs> There's an idea Brighton
1: I really don't want to Sound too authoritative On the subject of sex work Because obviously it's not something I engage in I would, I would encourage you to read The work of sex work activists Because they're so often Just completely shunted From mainstream feminist discourse When really this should be and centre So in my opinion Read, all, read some of our stuff, as I mentioned. Read Playing the Whore, check out Sex Workers Open University. Check out stuff on the New Zealand model. There, there is a lot of really interesting stuff out there written on it.
0: Yes, um, the politician I mentioned earlier is Georgina Bayer. She's also especially notable because she is a trans woman of colour.
1: I will say that is one thing that I would point out about the story is the 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 sex workers we see depicted do seem to be exclusively cisgender white women. Like the women that Clara brings into the brothel, and then when we get flashbacks to her time in the brothel in the eighteen hundreds, it does seem to be very, very working class and very white. It is a very white movie overall, actually.
0: Trying to think, is there anyone of colour in the movie? No, I'm just trying to figure out
1: there is.
0: Maybe some guy in the background.
1: Certainly nobody in the main cast or the ensemble.
0: If you were to imagine an Irish movie with Irish actors, it's probably every Irish actor you can think of. You know, all seven of them.
1: <laughs> and yet not a single Gleeson.
0: <laughs> the Irish Hemsworths. <laughs> Who are the Australian I mean, Neil Scars Jordan guys. is an
1: Irish filmmaker. Yeah. But um, I'm actually surprised it's not set in Ireland. I don't see why it couldn't be. The island that they go to to become vampires is off the coast of Ireland. There is a very Irish sensibility to the making of the film. I think it's because Moira Buffini, who wrote it, is English. So you just rate what you know, I guess. Probably
0: the most Irish person in this thing is Maria Doyle Kennedy, who plays Morag in the movie. You probably know her as Siobhan on Orphan Black.
1: She's also best known for being in The Commitments, so and uh, which is a really big deal in Ireland and the UK. So. And, but yeah, uh, nowadays she'll be best known for Orphan Black.
0: Maybe Catherine of Aragon if you watch the Tudors, but probably oh, yeah. Orphan Black. I'm, I'm on her Wikipedia page.
1: But there is a number of, you know, solid British character actors in here. Tom Hollander turns up as one of the college lecturers that reads Eleanor's work. He's not credited for, which is interesting. It's not um, a little Daniel, part either. Daniel Hayes is no old. You'll have seen him in a bunch of things. Sam Riley and John Lee Miller, we mentioned earlier. Even someone like Gemma Arterton, who is so often just categorised as the Bond girl even though she's only on Quantum of Solace for, like, ten minutes.
0: Yeah, she was still a Bond girl in the St. Trinian's movies. So.
1: Well, she, was, she was
0: more but Bond there. She was more Bond than Bond girl, but... One of the vampires is of Iraqi descent. That's about it.
1: Oh, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. The douchebag. <laughs> it's very British to note that as fascinating as this piece is in terms of class it's not so good in terms of race that's a big problem that a lot of pop culture has in Britain and indeed the country has a problem with in general which is they tend to see race and class as being totally separate issues rather than intersectional
0: yeah and this is a problem that vampire fiction in particular has we love our pale white people yes which again ties into that class thing but just also we talk about the paleness of the vampire and
1: yeah i remember when that came up in one of i think it comes up in breaking dawn that the um is it the mexican vampires have oh, yeah. incredibly pale skin and it's kind of like do you know what you're doing there yeah
0: not that every mexican person is Dark-skinned. I mean, you see a lot of um, actors who are Latino or Latina not playing Latino characters because they aren't seen as Latino enough.
1: Yeah, of course. I didn't mean to. Yeah, to away that issue,
0: like with Raúl Espaza not often playing Latino characters. <laughs> of course, you're right. Uh, well, First I couldn't me. remember the other guy, the other Latino guy in Special Victims Unit. You know, okay, the one
1: who Danny plays Danny them- Pino. Yes, there we go. <laughs> but it is uh, something to point out here uh, that, that I think is worth noticing, given how fascinating and almost radical Byzantium is in terms of those intersections of vampire stories and gender, sex, work, and class. That, you know, everyone is white. It? It's hard to not notice it.
0: Okay, so we have touched on the dysfunctional relationship that is the mother-daughter relationship between Clara and Eleanor, but not enough because there's something inherently toxic and abusive about their relationship.
1: Obsessively codependent.
0: Yeah, going back to... Although I would
1: have more on Clara's side than elves.
0: Yeah, this is a story about one person being more dependent than the other and it's not the child. The child wants to break free and the child wants to grow up and find some sort of independence or even just a settled life, whereas Clara is permanently on the run and we can completely understand why.
1: But But she never tells Eleanor why she's on the run.
0: Yeah. She's clinging to her daughter and with the idea that it's keeping her safe when it's just making Eleanor unhappier and unhappier and therefore more prone to acting out in some way to find her own self. She's a girl desperate to tell her story, to live some form of a life. And by being denied that, she's being denied some agency of her own. So the moment somebody tries to come into her life in the form of Frank, our boy with leukemia, she latches on to him.
1: There's also an interesting element, and I think this is where you really see it more as a a mother-daughter dynamic, which is that eleanor is really not a fan of and seems in many ways kind of resentful of the fact that her mother does sex work
0: yeah she's she's just constantly not impressed she's she's not impressed by a lot of things her mother does sex work, killing dudes Ugh oh, mom seriously i like this run down council apartment why do you have to kill some guy here
1: yeah, and then that comes back... That That is a very parental dynamic, which is, you're not grateful for the things that I do for you. I put a roof over your head, I put food on the table, albeit the food is this guy that I just shanked. Do you know what but I... She is, she is fulfilling the, the motherly duty as she sees it, which is to nurture, to provide, to protect. Even if she is keeping secret why she has to protect her, even if she is being... Pretty brutal in the way that she goes about it. But she also lords up her head a little bit. Keep your mouth shut her up till
0: Do you know what I've sacrificed for you and you need to do what I say, it's for your it's it's for the best. I'm doing this for you. You need to follow my rules for you without any understanding.
1: Yeah, you don't know how the bad how bad the world is out there without me, the, you know, you'll crumble. That kind of thing. But without- It is very, it is the kind of blackmail that you can only get from someone who really loves you. You know, she expects her to follow
0: these rules and these ideas without explaining the why, and when, now that um, Eleanor's at that age of asking why, and probably has been for a good number of years, she's fighting against the restraints of no explanations. I imagine if Eleanor had been told, look, here is the part of the story that you're missing, it explains everything. Elnor would probably be a bit more understanding. Not, not content, but she would be understanding and probably be able to take a more proactive role in protecting herself and her mother.
1: Yes, and I feel she would probably be at least more content to have that part of her story complete because... Eleanor's control over her own narrative is a huge driving force in the story she wants to tell her story the actual story and not the one that Clara insists that she tells as her cover and the only way that she can really do that is at the beginning we see her writing her story down and then throwing it out the window which frankly is sloppy like throw it into the river or something or burn it like go through Arrested of development and try to throw it into the sea
0: her mother's love has isolated her it's not just the fact that she's a vampire, it's the way that Clara sees Eleanor has to be protected.
1: And it's telling that in the beginning the people we see her interacting with more on her own are older individuals.
0: Well, she does eat all these people, so...
1: Yeah, but they seem <laughs> down with it, so... yeah, the There's a sort of can... understanding of, of death and the peace of it and longing where she gets the with older people. And to an extent, Frank, when we meet him, who is at her age or what the age that she looks, but is has also lived with life-threatening illness for most of his life. Yeah. And there's a scene where she accidentally knocks him off his bike and he cuts his arm and she's like, Okay, we'll get you a hospital and he immediately just almost ca- as casually as he can, just keeps walking home while his blood is <laughs> spilling across the street because he's on blood thinning drugs.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, I- I've just got to get home while well, everything's going <laughs> everywhere.
1: it's just like. And you can see she's, as they're walking, she just looks so confused. It's like, okay, I've been human for a long time, but I know it's not supposed to do that. I've got your bike. Yes, I love <laughs> that
0: bit. We see a lot of um, physical abuse in vampire films, or at least physical violence, but the emotional and psychological abuse isn't in a lot of them, you know, it's more at least amongst themselves, despite the the horrific nature of the immortal life, especially if you are permanently 16. We Mm -hmm. sort of saw it with Interview with the Vampire, with that toxic relationship, and the step douchebaggery of epic proportions
1: another neil jordan movie yeah surprise surprise that one made a lot more money than byzantium did
0: (laughs) yeah this is a single parent version of claudia who is slightly older
1: yeah claudia had had like at least a couple years of puberty
0: as opposed to being permanently five with a mentally aging brain
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which is horrifying more horrifying than people seem to acknowledge.
1: It's an interesting contrast between movies. I mean, there are similarities between Interview with the Vampire and Byzantium in terms of the central relationship and its very dark, abusive elements. Uh, Interview with the Vampire is, of course, a much more melodramatic affair. Everyone in that movie walks around going, oh, oh, it's me and my cravat, whereas Byzantium is more just, you know, shut up and get on with it.
0: Yeah, this it's... Emotional abuse. It's the end.
1: or the melodramatic ones. An interview. An a in Zantia list of women who are getting shit done.
0: It's the emotional abuse of the the emotional abuse between lovers versus emotional abuse between mother and child. Different forms of um, the emotional abuse and blackmail, but still emotional abuse and blackmail.
1: Yes, I think there's another theme that we should discuss, and we've discussed it a little bit previously in some of our podcasts episodes, but not as explicitly, um, which is the intersection between vampirism and illness, like real, uh, proper disease and sickness. There are two major examples in Byzantia. The first is, as we mentioned, Frank, who is dying of leukemia, which is obviously cancer of the blood. The connection there is not hard to see. And then, as we mentioned earlier, Often the John Lee Miller character is dying of syphilis, uh,
0: which was syphilis type—the classic vampire syphilis story.
1: <laughs> I did talk about this an awful lot, but here it is actually an explicit thing, and this is one of only two vampire movies I can think of that do that. The other one is the BBC adaptation of Dracula, two thousand and six, where <laughs> vampirism is seen as a cure for syphilis. A cure that never comes, because don't make a deal with Dracula, twat. But it's, what's interesting as well about Ruffin's character here, obviously Ruffin, the Polidori vampire connection, is pretty obvious he doesn't actually become a vampire system. And he's not uh, as upper we, class. No, but we see him as almost like the degenerate upper class stereotype. Like the idea of this syphilis-ridden nobility who take, take, take from the working classes and never give anything in return Thieves, who are liars or self-interested I mean, he is the one that takes Darville to the island and when he thinks he's dead his immediate response is to steal all of his shit Well I don't think over the jewelry and stuff that he's got on him, but like his estate Yeah, I've
0: got the rings now I'm just going to pretend to be him, I suppose I think everyone's really glad that he did not become a vampire Because if he'd had that power, oh boy. Okay,
1: suggestion. We've talked about this before. Obviously, um, Dracula is a very common metaphor for the spread of disease, particularly from the continent. The Werner Herzog remake of Nosferatu really drives home the metaphor of the plague as vampirism. But we still see it as an explicit... Connotation of syphilis was keep in mind During the 1800s Was a real epidemic Like, it was Everywhere And it was something that was often associated With the upper classes Particularly with artistic types Toulouse-Lautrec I don't know why I can do remember, But Toulouse-Lautrec Who was known to be a, a frequent visitor To the Moulin Rouge Was said to have syphilis uh, a number of major historical figures were said to have had syphilis, including Hitler and Lenin, which is suspected, but I don't think it was ever confirmed. Baudelaire, uh, Guy de Montessant, a lot of French people of the time. So it was a very bohemian thing, almost. So basically, if you could imagine
0: all of the archetypes who were screwing each other, they probably all had syphilis thanks to one of them.
1: Pretty much. Um, what is interesting is that we are, we associate syphilis as being very like in a very old-fashioned kind of disease. It's still something you can get, and numbers are actually rising around the world. Probably because people you think know, you can't get syphilis, because it's an old-thing disease. It's like Gantt. It's a thing that people think you don't get anymore. But, you know, it still exists. It's treatable, but it's not curable. So that's what is interesting about the situation that the roughbin character finds himself in, in Byzantium. It's not curable, unless you are willing to die. But the chances are, he's probably still going to be left with the facial scars. This is not a vampirism that increases your beauty or gives you any kind of major powers or strengths. It really doesn't do that much. Obviously, it preserves you in that space and time and it requires you to drink blood, but the only physical transformation that you see is occasionally you get a really long thumbnail, and that's how you feed
0: You see it in some other stories where they don't have uh, sharp fangs, but they do have uh, growing nails, or sometimes you do get the growing nails in combination with the fangs. Sort of a, a way of giving them weapons, but also to sort of show them as being more animalistic than humans. Although, if you see some of the nail because art you could show that with uh, I think it's just also other things are deforming. You know, we see our hands as sort of the pinnacle of what can be done. Looking at chimpanzees versus monkeys versus your cat, power of the opposable thumb, and the just also just the delicacy and the care that we take of our hands. If it starts to get super hairy, super long nails, it's more amoralistic, or there's less care, or just weird. But then again, you look at some of the nail art women have these days, and how long their nails are; and they could probably slit through a few throats.
1: It doesn't seem to be many benefits that come with being a vampire either. You're probably a little. You seem to be like, a little so-
0: stronger, but not dramatically so. Uh, there's the sequence right at the beginning where Clara is fleeing from some dude. She later cuts his head off but there's no super leaps there's no
1: but she doesn't building. really seem that much stronger i mean it is it is work for her to cut that guy's head off
0: yeah she's just more tough than strong she can withstand more but she can't dish it out and she can't leap off a building and turn to a field of bats or um a mist or some other classic moves that vampires can pull The only thing is, she's not as roughed up when she falls through a skylight or when she gets hit by a car and she can punch a hole in a car windscreen. But part of that just could be the sheer maternal instinct, you know, lifting a car off her baby type thing.
1: Also, she's just pissed off. What it reminded me of is... Well, she is. What it reminded me of is there's a Hitchcock film called Torn Curtain and there's a scene in that. um, There's a fight scene between two men and it is... An incredibly prolonged scene and that's because Hitchcock wanted to show that it is actually incredibly difficult to kill someone because so many movies of the time especially spy thrillers your James Bond and things like that make killing someone look really easy and this one isn't quite as prolonged out but you do see the physical effort she has to put into actually decapitating a man with piano wire.
0: Yeah and she has to get him by surprise that's the only way she can kill him is by having the element of surprise. She doesn't have the physical strength.
1: Yeah, I really feel like the only benefit to be- becoming a vampire in this era, or this particular kind of vampire, is you don't die. I mean, it's not to say that you're immortal. You can die, as, you know, you can die pretty brutally. It seems like yield decapitation is the way to go there. But, you know, not dying is a pretty good benefit. It's just... You get
0: the, the the perfect health, and you stay young and don't age. The, it's the very very basic form of um, vampirism. Yes, yeah, terrible. There's no special powers or shape shifting or what have you. It's just you exist yeah. and you keep on existing. And in the
1: context, yeah, and in the context of this particular kind of vampirism, it's more like being inducted into a really cool club. Assuming you're it's almost a... just like the next level being an, an aristocrat. It's like, well, you're an aristocrat, now you're a super aristocrat. <laughs> super aristocrat.
0: The worst superhero ever, super aristocrat.
1: But that was very interesting to me. I, I, it always feels like you see a lot of this with people writing genre fiction when they don't usually write genre fiction, is they're desperate to, quote-unquote, deconstruct it. You can only deconstruct so, it if you know, you know how it's constructed. The spy film can't have any. But also, you can't see, like, for example, the deconstructed spy film is all about stripping away the, the glamour and escapism. And there's merit to that. A lot of the films I really like. With something like a vampire film, there's almost, like, a slight creeping around the fact that you're making a vampire movie and you don't want to talk about it as being a vampire movie or a vampire story. Like, we have... What are the other ones that we've done where they've been vampires, but they've never explicitly been called vampires. Well, nothing. Often Do they call like... themselves vampires in Left In what?
0: Uh, oh, I uh, Lovers Left Alive*. I don't know, but they would probably call themselves a lot of things. Oh, I would need to check. But it's something that, going back to the Stephanie Meyer, it's something that we discussed and other people have criticised her for. It's because she had pretty much no knowledge of vampires when she wrote *Twilight*, etc. Yet somehow she managed to hit on most of Mm -hmm. the tropes. So either it's an automatic thing, no matter what you're writing, vampires tend to go in a certain direction.
1: It's cultural osmosis. Yeah,
0: she's seen enough kids dressed up as Dracula on Halloween. (laughs) She's walked past TVs that are playing Dracula. Yes. Or there have been enough Dracula references in other TV shows.
1: So that's the thing is, the audience will know that these are vampires. You don't have to call them them. It's just, it's so in the cultural ether that we we know that. We associate that kind of blood drinking with vampires. We don't think of them as immortal cannibals, you know. This is not a Hannibal-like situation.
0: So while Byzantium does use the film uh, vampire, it also uses the term sucreant. So I think Eleanor sort of uses the term vampire in her stories as a way of better communicating to her invisible audience what she is it's also more yeah and she's a really good writer yeah she's got some wonderful imagery in there as the writing teachers actually acknowledge they just assume that she's a bit off in the head because she's supposed to be writing an autobiographical piece and she writes about how she became a vampire so while she uses the term vampire in there and the human characters use the term vampire the words that the vampires themselves seem to use is sucreant
1: Which is not a European term.
0: No, it's a shape-shifting figure from Caribbean folklore. It's a blood-sucking hag, basically. To quote from uh, Wikipedia, the Sucreant is a shape-shifting Caribbean folklore character who appears as a reclusive old woman by day. By night, she strips off her wrinkled skin and puts it in a mortar. In her true form, as a fireball, she flies across the dark sky in search of a victim. That is so cool,
1: but that's the thing as well. As we mentioned, this book no, not this bo- This film is very, very white, and it's all about the upper class white male aristocracy. And man, they're still doing cultural appropriation because obviously these bear absolutely no resemblance to the secretions of character folklore.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, it says here that the secret can enter the home of her victim through any size holes, like cracks, crevices, or keyholes. Now, this is obviously not what happens in Byzantium. It's not explicitly stated, but it is hinted that they do have the invitation clause in their existence. You see it a few times, uh, first in the beginning, where Eleanor waits politely outside the door before being invited into the old man, who's asked to die. Again, when she goes to visit Frank, and then third time when Frank comes to see Clara. Sorry, when Clara goes to see Frank. Frank staying inside on the assumption that, you know, he has to invite her in. But eventually we get to a point where before the standoff can come to an end, either with really him stepping out or her stepping in without being invited, bad shit goes down elsewhere regarding Eleanor. So it sort of hints at other, other aspects of vampirism or other tropes that we would expect of vampirism, but doesn't specifically go into it. Now, for someone like Neil Jordan, who obviously does have experience in creating vampire films, he did *Interview with a Vampire*. This is someone who un- at least understands some of the basics of vampirism in some form of fiction.
1: Not yeah, like, and for Moira Buffini, who is best known as a playwright, I imagine for her, maybe just coming and saying "I'm a vampire" is probably a little too on the nose. Like, I think this is a movie where you could strip away a lot of the dialogue actually, and probably just tell it pretty visually. Yeah. There are a lot but of it's scenes. it's beautifully shot at times.
0: It's just so solemn.
1: The scene where we first see the transformation into a vampire on the island, what happens is they go into this, this small brick building and hundreds of, I believe they are crows, fly out. And then all of the waterfalls around them turn blood red. And it's really striking.
0: Yeah, you don't actually see... It's so
1: unlike anything else I've seen in Vampire Fiction. It's not something you pass from one person to another. It's not like a disease that you can contract. It is mystical, very mystical. It's almost a religious experience.
0: Yeah, it's sort of what you'd imagine the first vampire transformation to be. Even the ones that go on to become plaguers or that just pass it on through biting of some sort. The mystical transformation that elevates the first... This early human to the first vampire, but in this case the pro- the practice continues. It's uh, difficult to do, which is why the population is so small.
1: Yeah, that's it. Adds to the the exclusivity of it. Exactly. You can't just get because you know only they can have all the nice things. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a nice thing.
0: Yeah, it's not like in any story with the stat where you know some hobo jumps on him and it's like I'm going to make you a vampire and then kill myself. Because reasons. Because I just kind of want to fuck with you, to be honest. <laughs> I need someone to know I'm, d- I'm dead, so you do. The only other thing that I know is they discussed the absence or the destruction of the soul when one goes through this transformation. Uh, it's not something I'm not sure that they've actually confirmed, or if it's just the idea because they have to feed physically on the blood and the life force of other people that clearly they have to be soulless creatures to do that.
1: Yeah, the transformation itself is interesting because the person that does it is yourself. Sort of this manifestation of you that that looks you in the eye and says, this is how you die, and then just gets to the stabbing.
0: Yeah, they call it the nameless saint, and the nameless saint takes on your um, form. In a way, you are your own maker. You need to be ready, or at least willing to die, to live forever.
1: And die brutally.
0: There's a a line in a song by a band, uh, Zandria. Uh, It's like, and would you kiss the sun goodbye and give your life to never die? And that's the second part is basically what happens here. You need to be willing to give your life to never die. You are your own sacrifice.
1: And it's interesting that that's seen as a privilege for only the the upper class men. Like there's always a self-congratulatory element to it. Like, well done, me. Yeah, there are a few um, works
0: that do touch upon the upper class nature of the vampire stories. Um, The one that really sticks to my mind at the moment is um, The New Dead Wardians, which is about the upper class specifically becoming vampires to escape the zombie plagues. So it's a mark of your status to become a vampire whereas the poor people are left to hopefully not die at the hands of all the zombies, because that's the hopefully. thing. Yeah, the zombies are the the unwashed masses, if you will. They're basically what Donald Trump is afraid of.
1: <laughs> but they are really disdainful of them. There's a scene at the end where Maria Doll Kennedy, obviously the impression that they have been given is that Eleanor is being neglected or abused by her mother and they come to sort of take her away and she does not realize that the people she's with are these two vampires and when they start trying to kill Clara she really screams about it and they snap her neck and he makes a sort of really disdainful comment about how he hates what is the term he uses it's, it hates humans or he hates their whining or something. it's really just sort of like you're beneath me just like ugh, nagging
0: women type thing
1: it is totally off kicks. Coming from a very dignified actor, but that's basically the tone that they're going for.
0: Yeah, and they could have solved that problem, prevented that problem by figuring out their plan a bit better and not having her there or whatever.
1: But <laughs> their plan sucks.
0: Yeah, they've not been doing it very well for decades. They've been sucking at it. No pun intended.
1: There's was not really much sucking before. it didn't sort of stab and kind of drink in the, the spill.
0: Yeah. It's like in The Hunger. But instead of having the, you know, the artsy... Wait, do
1: did they, did they call them vampires in The Hunger? Uh, I don't know. That's the one I don't have notes for. Oh, no. I think to end the episode, we need to talk about how the film ends, which is... Eleanor and Clara go in their separate ways Clara has you know, finally given Eleanor Permission to to leave her But they both go off with men It ends pretty Heteronormative Clara goes off with Darville Who was always hinted to be the kind of The good man in her life Although this movie is not really full of good men And Eleanor Takes Frank to the island To assumedly Be with her forever and also not die.
0: It's interesting because it's almost like they've obtained male followers.
1: Well, they're more on equal footing with them. You know, Clara sort of lets Darvel tag along with her. Because you know, she's obviously on the run and he really wants to be free of the kind of ridiculous hierarchy that their kind has. Among the men that he's obviously been stuck with for a couple hundred years. And Eleanor, for probably the first time in her life, is the one with the power in her corner of two 16-year-olds sort of traveling together inconspicuously is probably not going to happen.
0: Just need to, you know, change the way they dress and look to look a bit older and they could just say they're, they're students on their way.
1: But I, I just found that very interesting, that for a story that is about something you don't see very often in fiction or vampire fiction, which is female companionship relationship between mothers and daughters, and it does just end with, bye-bye, we're going to go off with the men, which is obviously simplifying it a little, but it's not a romantic ending, you should say. Like, this is not Twilight.
0: No, there's no romantic reunion between uh, Davil and Clara. He sort of acknowledges that he did wrong by her and that he's sort of inspired by her trying to do the right thing and maybe he can hang out with her and try and make things up with her, make things up to her. He sort of asks, you know, if he can have a forgiveness and she's like, no. He's like, well, I'm going to at least try. I'm going to help you. I'm going to follow your lead because you've obviously got the better idea here. Whereas for the first time, Eleanor will be just be making her own life and making her own choices where she's going is not quite as clear, although Clara's is just not as clear either, but at least you can get some idea that she's going to go out and grow in her own way and do what she sees is the right thing, whereas Eleanor's just going to try and grow.
1: There is definitely an ending of um, ambiguity, which is what the film is really excited to be doing anyway, so that makes sense. Yeah, it's about
0: change, but not the results of change, really, because the change is just beginning at the end of the movie.
1: It's more about the characters, as we mentioned. You know, Clara is probably still going to be on the run because, you know, she does tend to keep killing all these people who are out to get her. But there's no real tension of, oh, is she going to get away now? It's really just, she's got another step to make. She'll go where she's going to go and she's got someone and to she's su- got Sam with her, and he's quite good looking. So. Yeah,
0: she's got someone to support her with her. And probably Eleanor is going to be a bit safer, or at least some happier for the time being, on her own, with her own choices and with her own understanding of what is actually happening. Eleanor now knows the truth.
1: And Eleanor has shared her story. She's finally kind of gotten that off her chest. This thing that has clearly... This need that she's had, this hunger that she's been haunted by for 200 years. She's finally got someone to share it with and not have to cloak it in half-truths. And there's nothing to be said about that. It's really powerful. It's the the Joan Didion quote, we tell our stories in order to live. This is a story about stories and the urge to tell them. Which coming from a playwright is no surprise. (laughs) <laughs> a playwright who is in Moira Buffini's most recent work was a modern internet-based adaptation of Alice in Wonderland as a musical by Damon Alderman from Blur. Complicated. Like you do. Before we wrap it up, let's just end it with a little bit of final thoughts on the movie. What did you I, think of it?
0: I liked it. I'm glad I watched it. I wish I'd watched it earlier.
1: I would recommend this one. It did slip under the radar because it lost... So much money. Like, uh, seriously, you guys, this bill cost about $20 million to make. Which, you know, it cost $8 million, and it only made 800000 Oh, so it only made 10% of its budget. Keep in mind, to break even these days, you're really supposed to make double your budget and an extra forty percent to advertising and such. So... Not
0: good. From what I can see, people are complaining that they didn't open anywhere or they didn't get any advertising, so they found it a lot later. So maybe if they'd had a bit more support or whatever, it may have done better. Who knows? But I wouldn't be surprised if some distributors were like, oh, it's a vampire story about women.
1: Yeah, I would would be interested to see what the advertising was like for this when it first came out, trailers and such. I mean, the vampire craze was... It's definitely a thing at the time, but not quite for this age group. Yeah, the only... I think, I think this is aiming for prestige, older, more mature audience. Also, it's a very indie film. This is not a blockbuster.
0: There's a few clues on the poster, but it's not very obviously a vampire type film. It's not what you'd expect to be a vampire film if you were just showing up to the movies and going, you know what, that looks good. Very, very indie, very artsy.
1: But it is worth your time. I mean, it offers so much to the perspective that we hadn't really seen before, or at least not tackled so explicitly.
0: Yeah, it touches on a different angle of vampirism, or at least the different angle on some of the tropes you see in vampirism. Like, the we have here in this movie, we have the sex worker as the vampire rather than the vampire's victim which we sort of mentioned in Interview with the Vampire, which was sort of, you know, one of Lestat's favourite prey.
1: Yeah, it's just good to see a narrative reclaimed for a very marginalised group of women. Uh, You can probably argue on the successes of it. I would be very interested to read a sex worker's perspective on this film. If there is one, can you point us out to it? Because I can't find one. Yeah, a shot. it should be available where streaming is available. I think it's definitely on Amazon. It's around. You could probably pick it up pretty cheap, because it, as we said, it didn't do that well.
0: Uh, what about you? So this is your second viewing of it. What are some of the things that you picked up on the second viewing that you didn't see on the first?
1: Really everything regarding the, the second narrative. Right? I noticed a lot more the second time around just because it's something I am more aware of. When I first saw the film, it was just it kind of the back of my head. Here, it is so front and centre. But I think it is just a really interesting addition to the canon. It's an interesting companion to Neil Jordan's last vampire movie. So if there's a fun double bill for you, it's really good to see Jim Arterton in a leading role that appreciates how good she is as an actress. Because I think she's been kind of shunted in British film for a long time. It's like, oh, she's just a Bond girl or a Trinian's girl.
0: Yeah, because her previous roles were well, you saw Quantum of Solace, uh, she was in Clash of the Titans, Prince of Persia, and Gretel and Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. So she's sort of... The, oh, yes. That. She's the hot action girl.
1: Yes. But it's good to see her doing more. I mean, I... Yeah, give it a go. You've got nothing to lose except time. Which
0: is time. interesting because you see her in as hot action girl in the major film budgety thing, and then you realise she's been in just, you know, Lost in Austin and all sorts of classic literature ad- adaptations, you know. Some parts of her filmography are very British. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, Gemma Arterton is getting kind of a second wind as an actress now in Britain because she's been doing a lot of stage work. She played Nell Gwynn on stage and did very well. And she was in the musical version of Maiden Dagenham.
0: Nell Gwynn. But so, yeah, this play? is an
1: interesting addition to her career.
0: So that's it for this episode of Bloodsucking Feminists. Next month it'll be our annual Twilight It's Totally Not a Saga episode. Um, So that'll be New Moon, the second book in the series. We'll probably have some interesting things to say on that one about depression and relationships and bad ideas when it comes to your boyfriend dumping you. Uh, We'll also have to do some reading on Native American issues in relation to Twilight, so off to Debbie Reese's site we go.
1: And also shirtless werewolves. (laughs) The important stuff.
0: Yes, lots of shirtless werewolves. Allergic to shirt jokes. You know, the classics. Somebody should write a story about werewolves who just wear... Oh wait, no, that was what we do in the shadows, never mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're getting that sequel, aren't we? We have to wait till four or three is done
0: werewolves
1: yes werewolves <laughs> anything else you'd like to say I'm not wild about just doing human no but, you know, we are, we are dedicated to the craft
0: we suffer for our art so yes if you want to get in touch with us you can visit our website bloodsuckingfeminist.com email us at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com that's fangmail with a g because puns are life We're also on Twitter at BloodsuckingFem. We're also on Facebook. And if you Google, I'm sure you can find some other places that we don't know about. Please do not send us any hate mail.
1: It only hurts you when you send us hate mail, guys.
0: Because we will publish it and laugh.
1: And then Um, our download numbers go up.
0: mm -hmm. So we'll see you next month. Until then, don't let the
1: vampires bite. Or stab you in the neck.